Hello, and welcome to this episode of King's College London's Geography Pint of Science 2023, where we bring the scientists to the pub to talk about their research, and then through the power of technology to you, our lovely listener. I'm your host, Torin Whitehead, and I'm a doctoral researcher exploring different possible future visions for the Scottish landscape, of which one could include large carnivores such as lynx. This episode is the fourth of five about our Pint of Science panel we did back in May, called People and Nature, where myself and four other budding scientists explored the increasingly complex and confusing relationship we have with the natural world. In this episode, we will hear from Anna Smith, a PhD researcher at King's College London. From African wild dogs in Botswana to an 18th century Swedish botanist, Anna certainly had the whole pub howling by the end of her talk. So join me in grabbing a pint or a different beverage and let's virtually transport ourselves to the pub to listen to Anna. I look at the way that humans interact with and understand nature in the context of global environmental change, specifically species loss. Um, and that goes over three uh, key themes, encounter, emotion and perception. And through my work, I focus on, on one species predominantly. I focus on African wild dogs. They're um, a monotypic canid, which means that they're the only um, species that exists in their genus or their family. Um, there's only about 6,000 of them left in the wild, so they're very, very, very endangered. Um, and they're often dubbed the most social canid, and they live exclusively in packs. What my work asks is, how do animals exist in humans' imagination? and then trying to connect this with multidisciplinary conservation solutions, so thinking about how the sociocultural lives of species actually impact their survival. So one of the places that I look in my research is at other researchers. So I'm a social scientist, but I've spent a lot of time doing my field work following scientists around the bush, seeing how they produce their knowledge, um, going to conferences, sitting in BOMAs to study animal behaviour and looking at different ways that knowledge is produced. Another place that I look is in public-facing institutions. So that's UK-based zoos and museums. So seeing how they present these species, how they take that knowledge that was produced by the researchers in the field and how they transform that in ex situ conservation spaces. Uh, I also look at archival research, so thinking about the knowledge foundations that impact these representations of species. Uh, also look at documentaries, literature, even branding. Uh, <laughs> There's a nice selection of all the wild dog alcohol branding that's out there. You'd be surprised how much wild dog beer there actually is. So my research uh, methodology kind of looks a little bit like this. So I do a lot of interviews. Um, I also collect audio um, files and photography and field observations. And that's really in an effort to sort of centre the animal in animal geographies and preserve that liveliness of the species because unfortunately I can't actually interview an African wild dog. So this is, this is the best that I can get. And yeah, a lot of my research also looks like this, spending a lot, a lot, a lot of time in the car, driving around following wild dogs. You could call me the wild dog detective. Uh, <laughs> but I've got five minutes now to convince you that naming is not neutral. So, Carl Linnaeus, also sometimes referred to as the father of modern taxonomy. Why is he important, I hear you ask? Well, this guy was pretty big on naming, and this quote kind of summarizes his philosophy to naming. Um, so, if you, don't, if you do not know the names of things, the knowledge of them is lost too. And he 
was sort of the forefather of the system that we use in scientific naming today, um, which is binomial nomenclature. So that's um, having those names with two parts that you often see you know, on signs in parks where you've got the Latin names of trees or if you're walking around a zoo, that kind of stuff. That's, that's all him. Uh, <laughs> why is this important? Why are you telling us about this old white man from the 1700s? Well, his system became popularized during the Victorian era, which is one that's characterized by colonialism and scientific expansion. So think of all of those stereotypical images of colonial explorers going out to far-flung lands to collect specimens and bring them back to be classified in Europe. So I've already given you one example of how contentious, problematic histories are embedded within the systems that we still use today. So uh, before I move on, I'll just quickly explain how this system works for those of you that don't know. So we're using this example of Torrance Favourite, the wolf, which is Canis lupus. Canis is the genus the first part of the binomial, and then lupus is the species, so the second part of the binomial. So within this family of canis, within this family of wolves, you have lots of other different species. So you have the red wolf, you have the coyote, you have the Ethiopian wolf, and you have the black-backed jackal. So going back to my favorite animal, the African wild dog, would you believe me if I told you that the first colonial explorers to find one thought that it was a type of hyena? This was Conrad Temink um, sometime in the early 1800s, went over to southern Africa, saw a wild dog for the first time, thought for some kind of funny, odd-looking hyena, and then went away and wrote about it. And obviously now today we know that it's actually the Lycaeopictus, and um, since that species has been reclassified to be in its own family, its own genus, but his name is still embedded in its story. So when you use these scientific names in writing, you always put the authority at the end. So that's his name, Temink, is embedded in that species name forever. And this quote from animal historian Sandra Swart kind of uh, summarizes why I'm using these examples. So, animal history in Africa resembles a Macapai. It's long been familiar to locals, but seems a myth to outsiders from the global north and initially defies external classification. So all of that goes to say that we're producing all of this knowledge in this contested context, but actually these animals and the people that live near these animals have continued to exist long before these idiots came along and started <laughs> extracting stuff for their own gain. Uh, it's not just historical figures that get <laughs> embedded in um, taxonomic names. You've also got lots of contemporary celebrities embedded in them as well. So we've got a horsefly with a golden butt named after Beyonce. We've got a parasitic wasp named after Shakira because it makes its host jiggle and shake. Uh, <laughs> and lastly, we've got a marsh rabbit from southeastern USA named after Hugh Hefner for his famous work as founder of Playboy. <laughs> but it's not just specific names. There's also overall trends that we can look at and find um, not just individual stories, but overall stories that tell us about these histories within scientific practices. But this is taken from a paper looking at um, eponymic names within the allogena. So eponymic just means referring to names that are honoring um, specific humans. In the allogenas, out of 278 eponymous names, 87% of those honor men and only 13% honor women. And out of that, so that 13% uh, who are women represents 38 names. And out of those 38 names, 12 um, are referred to in the descriptions as wives, six are referred to as relatives, and two names are used twice. So that leaves just 18 out of 278 eponymous allo names that recognize women for their contributions to the field. 
uh, another paper that I want to bring to your attention is this one that looks at um, post-1950 bird names. So they, again, they summarized all of the eponymous names of birds from post-1950, and they found that 95% of birds post-1950 that were newly scientifically um, classified, the, the specimens came from the global south, whilst the majority of people who gave them these names or gave them these classifications came from the global north. Um, so that's sort of really re-embedding these uh, global inequalities and colonial power structures that we were seeing from before. And similar to the previous paper, um, the gender imbalances are also embedded in here. So four times more men were honored than women um, throughout these names. And the men were typically defined as colleagues, friends, patrons, notable scientists. And the women were typically classified as wives and daughters. And the last fact to just really hammer home my point is that um, on the in the International Code of Zoological Nomenclature, which is the body that regulates these names that I've been talking about throughout my talk, 25 out of 27 of these commissioners are male, meaning that a person in this role is twice as likely to be named Frank or Mark than be a woman, which <laughs> I think is quite shocking, really. <laughs> Another really interesting talk, and this time closely related to my favourite animal, uh, the wolf, uh, with uh, Anna's research about African wild dogs. Thanks for joining uh, me again, Meryl. How are you? Yeah, good. I feel like Anna won't um, be impressed if we don't start this by yeah, naming our favourite animal or having a favourite animal. You've mentioned yours is the wolf, and mine is the little kitty cat. So both ferocious killers. Um, I see we have a, a similarity there. <laughs> Well, I, I was wondering this. I'm not. I guess my favorite animal is the wolf, but I feel that like that's what I do my research on. I'm I'm quite into my birds, as I think I mentioned in the previous podcast. So, um, hmm, I'm gonna have to do some thinking about that. I think the more you study a singular thing, the more it becomes your favorite, but also your least favorite. Um, and it's a difficult a difficult journey to to reconciliation with those things. So, I reckon wolves will be your favorite and your most hated animal <laughs> within good time. I definitely have a soft spot for them. But um, but for now, <laughs> the uh, the first thing I wanted to pick up on was uh, if you don't know the name of it, the knowledge is lost too. Uh, and just lending again my own experience bird watching, um, it's definitely something I found that a year ago when I wasn't, I just kind of generalised all birds and never took any notice. And just paying attention to the different colours and patterns and learning the names that that process of learning inherently increases your connectedness to nature. Um, I didn't know if you had any experiences of that as well. I do. I, I, I do understand that perspective. Yeah. I mean, I think the more you know about things and that relates back to that, having a favorite, the more you know about things, the more you kind of engage with them and notice them. And um, I have a gorgeous tree outside my door but I don't know the name of it, but I have an attachment to it. Mm. And do you need the name for that? But then I do see all these birds come through and without knowing their names, I don't think I would have really engaged with them. But maybe that's because you need the story around it or you need to build a kind of narrative about the tree. The tree stays the same, the birds change. I don't know, maybe that, that's why I sought out uh, the names of all the jays and the blue tits and the great tits and the, the thrushes and the woodpecker. There's a woodpecker that lives in that tree. 
So there's some urban nature for you. There I am. In, yeah, in no, London. very cool. Well, I think as well, so obviously people have different interests. Uh, not everyone is a, a bird enthusiast. But um, kind of continuing with the theme of naming, uh, you know, naming is not neutral. And you, from Anna's talk, you can really see the colonial kind of structures and power inequalities of the binomial naming system uh, and how the vast majorities uh, of names were derived from, from white men. <laughs> to be blunt uh, and mm. I, I, that wasn't really something I, I had thought about and I think it's quite easy to not think about it um, especially with Latin names the, the, it's inference opposed to explicit this is the Beyonce Beyonce B I think it was a B yes <laughs> um, yes and actually that there's a relation there with some of my own work some of the analysis I'm doing at the moment about the Berlin Wall which was sort of really the most infamous border wall that existed in the 20th century um and widely regarded, widely accepted that its name is the Berlin Wall. Mm. But it was two walls <laughs> and a death strip and a load of surveillance and a lot of technology and then a frontier on the eastern side. The Berlin Wall was never a singular object. It was always a um, kind of mighty, well, by the end of it, a mighty project and a mash of loads of stuff. But nonetheless, names can be reduced and um, made simplistic names can be sort of reduced and um, simplistic for the benefit of, of pertinence, for them to be more, uh, to have more of a reach, maybe, maybe we can say. And so with naming practices in, in nature, in the scientific realm as well, you have this justification behind it and a validity behind it, which then masks and sort of hides maybe the stories that then come out through a lot of what Anna's talking about. And I think that's what's quite interesting I'm a social scientist. I kind of work against science in a lot of my work because I very much put subjectivity through my work. I think there's use in it. Um, so I look for discord all the time. I'm constantly eking for it. Um, so I find it fascinating that the naming practices don't get questioned and they get accepted and that's just normative. But I don't know if you ever encountered sort of anything like this where you've found a name and it's sort of made you think something or has it made you reflect since listening to Anna on like, being more attuned to the discursive practices within scientific work. Yeah, I think it kind of ties into a part of my work about shifting baseline syndrome, which okay. is the idea that across multiple generations, our baseline shifts for what we accept as normal because we build mm. our perceptions of nature on our own experiences. And I suppose it's the question, well, has it always been like that? Or what is that derived from? How has that become to be? And so in, in Scotland, you know, we as conservationists quite often villainize farmers and gamekeepers, but the highly concentrated patterns of land, on land ownership are a result of the Highland clearances, which were deemed mm. improvements. And now you have this new wave of improvements under the uh, banner of rewilding. And that's not to mm -hmm. say obviously rewilding is going and you know, horrifically evicting uh, people mm. <laughs> uh, is very different, but you can see the, the similarities. So I think it's important we take the his historical analysis to kind of try mm. and understand the roots and origins of perhaps things we commonly just accept and perceive to be normal. Yeah, and I would just say that, like, what is the difference between having a statue that commemorates a colonial power or a colon colonizer or a statue that commemorates a colonizer like the two in Trafalgar Square? Very important people in the British to um, executing the British Raj and maintaining the British Raj based on Trafalgar Square. What's the difference between 
having statues, physical manifestations of these things, as with names, which is more powerful? Is, is materiality more powerful? I don't answer. Names are probably said more. Mm, I suppose that's almost like they, they they can go under the radar more easily, a name, yeah. as a statue, yeah. as perhaps a thing kind of sitting there. I mean, I suppose in some ways it goes under the radar because perhaps that statue's always been there, so we just kind of take it for granted and don't really mm -hmm. stop to think why the statue's there. But perhaps naming is, I, I suppose it's quite a handy system. <laughs> it works quite well yeah, in a lot well, of ways. Um, and, and that's where I want to bring up sort of the gender issues that Anna was speaking about at the end, which I think was really interesting. And it's just one way of just really evidencing this um, lack of neutrality, shall we say. She had a lot of statistics hammering at home. It was hard to refute. But what is the next step? So do we just get rid of these names that reference other people? Is that the easiest way of kind of challenging it? Do we rename them? Is there a way that we can use indigenous knowledge from, I think, the statistic when the majority of specimens were in the global south, but the majority of the naming came from the global north? Is there a way that we could recognize that? Like, we see it with the renaming of Uluru in Australia, um, and we, we change the names in order to represent their, their historical legacy. Is that a practice that... Um, the council, the international naming council gang, are going to do probably not when there's 25 or 27 of them male. Um, but nonetheless, where do we push it? How do we change these things? How do we stop it from happening? Maybe just getting rid of the, the names that are other humans is an easy one. But I kind of like Beyonce's bees and or mosquitoes or whatever. Uh, I, I quite like Shakira's one and the justification and the justification for it being that because it makes it. Uh, its victim wiggle and shake <laughs> yeah well i think this podcast will uh, will inevitably blow up on social media and there'll be big questions for the international naming gang as you refer to them yeah <laughs> which they should recall themselves the international naming gang so there's a lot of things that naming practices can go out of it doesn't just involve nature you can think of the hoover the Rizzler, other famous <laughs> objects that are now known as brands so yeah if the audience like has any kind of of their favourite of these words that become normalised. Um, it can be brand names, it can be nature, it can be whatever. But I'd love to hear if anyone's got some great examples because I love whipping them out. And I always say ketchup and that's wrong. So I need I need another one after Hoover and Rizzler. <laughs> okay, great. Well, you can get in uh, touch with us through the, uh, the Peebs Twitter handle, which I'll uh, put in the bio for this podcast. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Pint of Science. Listener, if you enjoyed your episode, please make sure you listen to our next one, where we listen to all four panellists discuss and debate the increasingly complex and confusing relationship that is people and nature in the Pint of Science panel discussion. See you then. I look at the way that humans interact with and understand nature in the context of global environmental change, specifically species loss, um, and that goes over three 